There's a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt that we still live by today. Eleanor was, uh, Roosevelt was the, the first lady of the United States from 1933 to 1945, and she was quoted as saying, do what you feel in your heart to be right, for you'll be judged either way. Do what you feel in your heart to be right, because you'll be judged either way. In some ways, it's a pretty good quote, isn't it? Let's not live for people's love and approval. Let's not live to please others. Let's live securely in who we are. And yet, is it really the best advice and the best attitude to live by? Do what you feel in your heart to be right. Like I said, people still live by this motto today, this attitude. We just call it something a little different here in the 21st century. We call it your truth. Live your truth. I'll live my truth. Your friends can live their truth, they live theirs, and everything will be okay, right? Do what you feel in your heart to be right. This is an attitude that people, I think probably from the fall into sin, since Adam and Eve sinned, I think this is an attitude that people have taken on since then. And it's the attitude that we see in the Israelites in Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Don't worry, we're not covering all those chapters today. We're just covering chapter 19. But it's that same attitude that the people had. In Judges 19, we're, we're in 1100 B.C., and if you remember from the cycle of the Judges, uh, God sends the people a, a deliverer, a judge, to free them from their slavery. They live in peace. Then the people turn from God. God hands them over after years of, of them of turning their backs on God. God hands them over to slavery to another nation. And then they cry out to God. God sends a deliverer, and the cycle just keeps going. After Samson, God sends no more judges, no more deliverers. He just lets the mess happen. And we are going to see how messy, how dark the book of Judges gets as we end with chapter 19. Uh, chapter 19, I think, could be played out in, in a, a scary movie. And that's what we're going to see as, as you kind of walk through this chapter. There are, there are lines in here, and I'll highlight them as we go along, that should set bells off in our heads. And if, there's, if it was a scary movie, there'd be ominous music in the background. And, and you think, uh-oh, something's not right here. And then we see what's not right, and it's darker than we could ever imagine. And remember, as we read through this section of Scripture, this is God's people. These are the Israelites we're talking about. We're not talking about some random foreign nation. These are God's people. So, let's jump into chapter 19, starting with verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Stop. This phrase, in those days Israel had no king, is set on repeat in 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. In those days Israel had no king. In those days Israel had no king. In those days Israel had no king. The author is screaming, this is what happens when you don't have a king. Here is the account that we hear. Now a Levite, who lived in a remote area in the uh, hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. She was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. 
After she had been there four months, her husband went to, to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servants and donkeys. She took him into her parents' home. Uh, she took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed them. His father-in-law, the woman's mother, or father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So we're introduced to uh, a Levite who was a temple worker. He helped the priest in the temple to do the, the, the things of worship in the Israelite community. He takes a concubine, we're told. Not a wife, a concubine. Basically a living girlfriend. You get all the quote-unquote benefits of a wife without actually being the wife. He doesn't have a wife, he's got a concubine. She apparently cheats on him. She's unfaithful to him, and so she takes off and goes back to her parents' house in Bethlehem. Uh, I think I got a map. Uh, nope, not yet. I'm coming to a map. So he, she is there. After four months, this Levite comes to get her back. The father welcomes him, and he stays for several days. After the fifth day, he says, we're going to go home now. We're going to go back to, to my home. And so he gets up, and he starts taking off. We're picking up with verse 10. If you're in your worship folder, it's down in the middle of the page. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. And they're near Jebus, and the day almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into a city, any city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. Ah, here's my map. Okay, so, if you can see, uh, Bethlehem is by uh, the big name that's Ibzon on your screen there. Uh, that's Bethlehem. That's where he goes to get the concubine. And it's towards the evening when they leave. So they don't have time to make the full journey. So they get to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, and the servant says, let's stay here for the night. And the Levite says, no. Why? They're not Israelites. They're Canaanites. Those are dangerous people. They aren't our people. And he stereotypes the whole city. And so he pushes on up to Gibeah, which is just north of Jerusalem. This was Israelite land. Okay? We continue. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I've been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to, to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed, uh, fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. Let's stop right there. You get two kind of, if this was a movie, two instances, two lines here where it makes you go, uh-oh. So they get to Gibeah, and they go to the town square. Uh, 
Obviously, they didn't have Holiday Inns or motels, so what did you do when you got to a town? You went to the city square, and everyone could tell that you're a traveler, you're a visitor, and somebody would welcome you in, because hospitality was huge then. And so the first thing that sets bells off in our heads is, they went to the town square, but nobody welcomed them in. If it was a movie scene, you, kinda, you would see uh, the, the woman, the Levite, and his servant looking back and forth to each other, kind of confused as to, where are the people? Why aren't they inviting us in? And then an old man shows up who's coming in from the fields, and he says, hey, you, you can stay at my house, just don't spend the night in the square. And if this was a movie, this is where the music would be cued in the background, and the darkness would start to kind of come in, and you could feel it. And so they go to the old man's house, they eat, they drink, they wash their feet, because that was custom, they're walking around in sandals all day, they're having a good time. Here's what we're told. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put, on, put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut, her, cut up his concubine limb by limb into twelve parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. It's one of the darkest stories in all of Scripture. Remember, this is a real story. This wasn't just a, a made-up fairy tale. This actually happened to this woman who has feelings, who experienced that hellish night and died. Do you know how the Israelites decided to respond? So speak up. Their speaking up was, let's get 400,000 men, go to Gibeah, and have a civil war. Fight among Israelites. And thousands and thousands of men died as they fought each other. That was their solution. This is one of the darkest stories in Scripture. And why? It's because in those days, Israel had no king. And the book of Judges closes as it says, the Israelites had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what they thought was right in their own hearts. And it got them here. If you were an Israelite reading this story, it would actually be shocking to hear again and again, in those days Israel had no king, in those days Israel had no king. 
Because you know how God set up the Israelite government as they left Egypt? As a theocracy. That meant that God was king. And so every time they hear, in those days Israel had no king, it sent up their antenna saying, wait a second, God's supposed to be our king. Exactly. The people had rejected God as king. And they did what they saw fit. If God were their king, if God were their king, this concubine wouldn't have cheated on the Levite. If God were their king, the Levite wouldn't have stereotyped a whole city just because they looked different than him. If God were their king, this man would not have offered his daughter and this concubine to these men who wanted to do this outrageous thing. If God were their king, these Israelite men would not have been pounding on the door to do something so immoral. If God were their king, this man would not have cut up his concubine and sent it all out as if he had no, uh, no responsibility in any of what happened. If God were their king, this Levite would not have opened the door and been so crass and say, get up, let's go, as if she didn't just experience the hellish night that she did. If God were their king, they wouldn't have gone and killed one another. They did what they saw was right in their own eyes. And so what do you and I learn from this? Point number one for the day is it shows the danger of doing what is right in your own eyes. This story shows us the danger of doing what is right in our own eyes. And that is what the people did. They did what was right in their own eyes. And after you do that for a while, it leads to things like this. And that's because all of our hearts have the same problem. And it's sin. It's sin. This, the Bible has many things to say about the heart. Here's what we're told in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Think about what that says. Think about what God's word says to you. Your heart, my heart, deceives us more than shady salesmen, than corrupt politicians. Our heart is deceitful above all. Who can understand it? That's why Solomon in Proverbs 14 says, whoever fears the Lord walks upright, but those who despise him are devious in their ways. Whoever fears the Lord walks upright. But when we get rid of the Lord in our hearts, we follow our devious ways. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts deceive us into doing things that are not God-pleasing. Our lives may not be nearly as dark as this story, and I know they're not. Uh, this is beyond dark. It's, it's horrible. And yet, we have the same issue, don't we? There's a part of us that wants to kick God off his throne. And when we kick him off his throne and we do what's right in our own eyes, it leads to darkness. Don't get me wrong, there's a part of us that loves 
God being the king until it comes to our marriages, when we're not, no longer happy, when our marriage is no longer working, when our marriage has problems and we don't want to work for it and we just want to give up. We love God as king until our coworker spouse is an idiot, then it's okay to flirt. We love God as king until it comes to stereotyping those people because of their color of their skin. Stereotyping those people for having a Trump flag in their front yard. Stereotyping those people for having a Biden-Harris sign in their front yard. Then it's okay to assume the worst of those people. We love God as king until it comes to treating women objective, or like an object. Until you're in a circle with your guy friends and someone starts passing a, a photo around of a hot woman, quote unquote, and you treat her like an object. It's okay. We want God as king until it comes to your pornography addiction. Then it's okay. We like God as king until it comes to using that person because of what they offer me and not loving them for them. We love God as king until it comes to respecting life. Then it's your child in your womb, and so it's your choice. We love God as king and respect life until that teenage mom decides to keep the baby, and then we've done our job of respecting life, and we don't support her through the pregnancy and onward. We leave her to fend for herself. We respect life until it comes to that authority. Boss, parents, president, governing authorities. Then we'll respect them only if they're respectable. We love God as king until it comes time when you're angry, when you're offended. And then it's okay to cut up that person's heart into 12 pieces because you're upset. See, we love God as king, but we have the same problem as the Israelites, don't we? We want to get rid of God as soon as it's inconvenient for us. We want to kick God off his throne and from calling shots in our lives when we want to do what we see fit. And so what's the cure? As you look around our world today, you sit and you wonder, how did America become so hatred, full of hatred and so divided? It's because everyone's doing what they see fit in their own eyes. They're doing what they see is right in their own hearts, and they're following it. And now we've gotten here. If, you're wonder, if you wonder how messes come into our own lives, it's that too. We follow our own hearts. So what's the cure? Well, we said what the Israelites tried to do, right? They tried to force the other into submission through war, through fighting. We may not think that, but we think if I elect the the governing authorities we want, they will make laws that I want and force the other side into submission. Or we just verbally shame the other people until they conform. But none of that actually works, does it? Tim Keller, a pastor, uh, tweeted this week that behavioral compliance without heart change is fleeting. 
Behavioral compliance without heart change is fleeting. In other words, we can get somebody to behave. You can get your kids to behave, but unless if their heart changes, it's just fleeting. It's gonna, they're going to comply now, but not later. And that's our issue. It's a heart issue, isn't it? It's a heart issue, and we need something that is going to change our hearts. And so here's your second point that we learned from today. We need a spiritual savior for a spiritual problem. We don't need more laws. That's not going to help change your heart. We don't need more people saying, do this, don't do that. That's not going to change your heart either. We don't need people to comply to what you want or what I want because that's not going to change hearts either. We need a spiritual savior for spiritual problems. And we've already said that problem is sin. And so what's the solution? It's the gospel. The good news about Jesus. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You look at chapter 19 and what do you see? Or what don't you see, I should say? You don't see God at all. It's a godless, Christless chapter. And you look at that chapter and you say, God, you so loved that? And God says, yes. I sent my one and only son to die for them. You look at the America today and you say, God, you so loved this? And God says, yes. I love this. I love these people so much I sent my one and only son to die for them. You look at your own heart as, as you rebel and you, you kick God off the throne and you say, God, you so, you so loved this. And he says, yes, I so love you that I gave my one and only son for you to live and die on the cross for you. Think of what God did. He literally sent his son out of his home in heaven into the darkness of this world where he was abused, where he was tortured all night long until in the morning he died with outstretched arms on the cross for you, for me, so that our hearts would be cleansed from all of our sins. This is what brings about heart change, not more laws, not more uh, behavior compliances. No, what changes our hearts is the grace of God. The undeserved, unconditional love of God that sent His one and only Son to save us from ourselves. Our very sinful self. God saved us from us. And He cleanses our hearts clean through the blood of our Savior Jesus. So now we stand before Him forgiven and loved. This is the king we need. We don't need a king who's going to give more laws. We need a king who reconciles us to God, and that's what we get through our Savior Jesus. This is what changes our hearts. This is the, the, the solution to our spiritual problem, because now we look and we say, God, if this is the God you are, that you're willing to give up your one and only son for me, then you must have my best interests at heart. And so I'm willing to follow you. 
I may not like it at times, but I know you are leading me and guiding me for what is best. When I don't like it, it's just my sinful nature talking. But you are the God who has washed me clean, who has saved me through your one and only Son, Jesus. This is what changes our hearts. This is what changes other hearts. And if you want to make change, you make it through your Savior, Jesus, as he changes hearts of others. So that we don't do what's right in our own eyes, but so that we do what's right in our God's eyes. And so this week, as you're faced with all kinds of different circumstances and how to act, how to react, think first, what does my God want? I want to follow him because he's proven time and time again just how much he loves me, and he's proven it ultimately at the cross where he saved me from my sin. As we close out the book of Judges today, we do so on this note that the people need a king. They need something because they are messed up. And so it's my invite to you today for next week. Here's your invitation. Come back next week as we celebrate Christ the King Sunday. How our Savior is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the King that those people needed. He's the King that we need. And so come back and hear about him next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, as we close up this book of Judges, we do so with uh, shaken hearts. It is disturbing how far the sinful heart will go when we're doing what's right in our own eyes and we don't have the guardrails that you have uh, laid out for us. Uh, as we look at this, let it be a warning to us so that uh, we turn to Jesus and we turn to the gospel message that you love them, you loved us, you love this world so much that you gave your one and only Son. Let that love motivate us to follow you, not because we're afraid, not because of consequences, but we want to follow you because we know that you love us and you have our best interests at heart. This week, help us always to think, uh, what does my God want me to do in this situation? Because I trust that he loves me so much. Be with us as we accomplish this this week. Amen. Part of tradition in Christian worship is that uh, a statement of faith is